0: Section 18 of Great Ghost Stories by Joseph Lewis French. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 18, The 415 Express by Amelia B. Edwards, Part 1. The events which I am about to relate took place between nine and ten years ago. Sebastopol had fallen in the early spring, the peace of Paris had been concluded since March, our commercial relations with the Russian Empire were but recently renewed, and I, returning home after my first northward journey since the war, was well pleased with the prospect of spending the month of December under the hospitable and thoroughly English roof of my excellent friend Jonathan Jelf Esquire of Dumbleton Manor, Clayborough, East Anglia. My way lay by the great East Anglian line as far as Clayborough Station, where I was to be met by one of the Dumbleton carriages and conveyed across the remaining nine miles of country. Having arrived some seven minutes before the starting of the train, and by the connivance of the guard, taken sole possession of an empty compartment, I lighted my travelling lamp, made myself particularly snug, and settled down to the undisturbed enjoyment of a book and a cigar. Great, therefore, was my disappointment when, at the last moment, A gentleman came hurrying along the platform, glanced into my carriage, opened the locked door with a private key, and stepped in. It struck me at the first glance that I had seen him before, a tall, spare man, thin-lipped, light-eyed, with an ungraceful stoop in the shoulders and scant gray hair worn somewhat long upon the collar. He carried a light waterproof coat, an umbrella, and a large brown Japanned deed box, which last he placed under the seat. I now recognized my companion. I had met him, as I distinctly remembered, some three years before, at the very house for which, in all probability, he was now bound like myself. His name was Dwerry House. He was a lawyer by profession, and, if I was not greatly mistaken, was first cousin to the wife of my host. I thought, observing him by the vague mixture of lamplight and twilight, that Mrs. Jelf's cousin looked all the worse for the three years' wear and tear which had gone over his head since our last meeting. He was very pale— and had a restless light in his eye that I did not remember to have observed before. The anxious lines, too, about his mouth were deepened, and there was a cavernous, hollow look about his cheeks and temples which seemed to speak of sickness or sorrow. When he had glanced at me for the third or fourth time, I ventured to address him. "'Mr. John Dwerryhouse, I think?' That is my name, he replied. I had the pleasure of meeting you at Dumbleton about three years ago. Mr. Dwerry House bowed. I thought I knew your face, he said, but your name I regret to say. Langford, William Langford. "'I have known Jonathan Jalf since we were boys together at Merchant Taylors, "'and I generally spend a few weeks at Dumbleton in the shooting season. "'I suppose we are bound for the same destination?' "'Not if you are on your way to the manor,' he replied. "'I am traveling upon business. "'You have heard, perhaps, that we are about to construct a branch line "'from Blackwater to Stockbridge.' You are an East Anglian director, I presume? My interest in the company, replied Mr. Duery House, is threefold. I am a director, I am a considerable shareholder, and as the head of the firm of Duery House, Duery House and Crake, I am the company's principal solicitor. Loquacious, self-important, full of his pet project, and apparently unable to talk on any other subject, Mr. Dwerry House then went on to tell of the opposition he had encountered and the obstacles he had overcome in the cause of the Stockbridge branch. I was entertained with a multitude of local details and local grievances. The rapacity of one squire, the impracticability of another— the indignation of the rector whose glebe was threatened, and so on and on and on, till my head ached and my attention flagged, and my eyes kept closing in spite of every effort that I made to keep them open. At length, I was roused by these three words, Seventy five thousand thousand pounds, cash down,' Seventy-five thousand pounds cash down, I repeated, in the liveliest tone I could assume. That is a heavy sum. A heavy sum to carry here, replied Mr. DeWerry pointing significantly to his breast pocket. But a mere fraction of what we shall ultimately have to pay. You do not mean to say that you have 75,000 pounds at this moment upon your person," I exclaimed. "My good sir, have I not been telling you so for the last half hour?" said Mr. Dwerryhouse testily. "That money has to be paid over at half past 8 o'clock this evening at the office of Sir Thomas's solicitors on completion of the deed of sale." "'But how will you get across by night from Blackwater to Stockbridge "'with seventy-five thousand pounds in your pocket?' "'To Stockbridge?' echoed the lawyer. "'I find I have made myself very imperfectly understood. "'I thought I had explained how this sum only carries us as far as Mallingford, "'the first stage, as it were, of our journey.' and how our route from Blackwater to Mallingford lies entirely through St. Thomas Liddell's property. I beg your pardon, I stammered. I fear my thoughts were wandering. So you only go as far as Mallingford tonight? Precisely. I shall get a conveyance from the Blackwater Arms. And you? Oh, Jeff sends a trap. "'to meet me at Clayborough. "'Can I be the bearer of any message from you?' "'You may say, if you please, Mr. Langford, "'that I wished I could have been your companion all the way, "'and that I will come over, if possible, before Christmas.' "'Nothing more?' "'Mr. Duery smiled grimly. "'Well,' he said, "'you may tell my cousin,' that she need not burn the hall down in my honour this time and that i shall be obliged if she will order the blue room chimney to be swept before i arrive that sounds tragic had you a conflagration on the occasion of your last visit to dumbleton something like it there had been no fire lighted in my bedroom since the spring the flue was foul and the rocks had built in it. So, when I went up to dress for dinner, I found the room full of smoke and the chimney on fire. Are we all ready at Blackwater? The train had gradually come to a pause while Mr. Dwerryhouse was speaking, and putting my head out of the window, I could see the station some few hundred yards ahead. There was another train before us blocking the way, and the guard was making use of the delay to collect the Blackwater tickets. I had scarcely ascertained our position when the ruddy-faced official appeared at our carriage door. Tickets, sir, said he. I am for Clayborough, I replied, holding out the tiny pink card. He took it glanced at it by the light of his little lantern, gave it back, looked, as I fancied, somewhat sharply at my fellow traveller, and disappeared. He did not ask for yours, I said with some surprise. They never do, replied mister House. They all know me, and of course I travel free. Black water Black Water cried the porter, Running along the platform beside us as we glided into the station, Mr. Dwerry House pulled out his deed-box, put his travelling cap in his pocket, resumed his hat, took down his umbrella, and prepared to be gone. Many thanks, Mr. Langford, for your society, he said with old-fashioned courtesy. I wish you a good evening. Good evening, I replied putting out my hand. But he either did not see it or did not choose to see it, and, slightly lifting his hat, stepped out upon the platform. Having done this, he moved slowly away and mingled with the departing crowd. Leaning forward to watch him out of sight, I trod upon something which proved to be a cigar case. It had fallen, no doubt, from the pocket of his waterproof coat, and was made of dark Morocco leather, with a silver monogram upon the side. I sprang out of the carriage just as the guard came to lock me in. "'Is there one minute to spare?' I asked eagerly. "'The gentleman who traveled down with me from town has dropped his cigar-case. He is not yet out of the station.' "'Just a minute and a half, sir,' replied the guard. "'You must be quick.' "'I dashed along the platform as fast as my feet could carry me. "'It was a large station, and Mr. House had by this time "'got more than halfway to the farther end. "'I, however, saw him distinctly, moving slowly with the stream. "'Then, as I drew nearer, I saw that he had met some friend,' that they were talking as they walked, that they presently fell back somewhat from the crowd and stood aside in earnest conversation. I made straight for the spot where they were waiting. There was a vivid gas jet just above their heads and the light fell full upon their faces. I saw both distinctly, the face of Mr. Duery and the face of his companion. Running, breathless, eager as I was, getting in the way of porters and passengers, and fearful every instant lest I should see the train going on without me, I yet observed that the newcomer was considerably younger and shorter than the director, and that he was sandy-haired, mustachioed, small-featured, and dressed in a close-cut suit of scotch tweed. I was now within a few yards of them, I ran against a stout gentleman. I was nearly knocked down by a luggage truck. I stumbled over a carpet bag. I gained the spot just as the driver's whistle warned me to return. To my utter stupefaction, they were no longer there. I had seen them but two seconds before, and they were gone. I stood still. I looked to right and left. I saw no sign of them in any direction. It was as if the platform had gaped and swallowed them. There were two gentlemen standing here a moment ago, I said to a porter at my elbow. Which way can they have gone? I saw no gentlemen, sir, replied the guard. The whistle shrilled out again. The guard far up on the platform held up his arm and shouted to me to come on if you are going on this train sir said the porter you must run for it i did run for it just gained the carriage as the train began to move was shoved in by the guard and left breathless and bewildered with mr dwerry house's cigar case still in my hand It was the strangest disappearance in the world. It was like a transformation trick in a pantomime. They were there one moment, palpably there, talking, with the gaslight full upon their faces, and the next moment they were gone. There was no door near, no window, no staircase. It was a mere slip of barren platform, tapestried with big advertisements— could anything be more mysterious? It was not worth thinking about, and yet for my life I could not help pondering upon it. Pondering, wondering, conjecturing, turning it over and over in my mind, and beating my brains for a solution of the enigma. I thought of it all the way from Blackwater to Clayborough. I thought of it all the way from Clayborough to Dumbleton as I rattled along the smooth highway in a trim dog-cart, drawn by a splendid black mare and driven by the silentest and dapperest of East Anglian grooms. We did the nine miles in something less than an hour and pulled up before the lodge gates just as the church clock was striking half-past seven. A couple of minutes more and the warm glow of the lighted hall was flooding out upon the gravel. A hearty grasp was on my hand, and a clear, jovial voice was bidding me welcome to Dumbleton. I am not going to describe either the guests or the dinner that night. All provincial parties bear the strictest family resemblance, and I am not aware that an East Anglian banquet offers any exception to the rule. There was the usual country baronet and his wife. There were the usual country parsons and their wives. There was the sempiternal turkey and haunch of venison. Vanitas vanitatum. There is nothing new under the sun. At length there came a pause. The entrees had just been removed, and the turkey had come upon the scene. The conversation had all along been of the languidest, but at this moment it happened to have stagnated altogether. Moved by an unlucky impulse, I thought I would relate my adventure. "'By the way, Jelf,' I began, "'I came down part of the way today with a friend of yours.' "'Indeed!' said the master of the feast, slicing scientifically into the breast of the turkey. "'With whom, pray?' "'It was no less a person than your wife's cousin, Mr. John Dweryhouse.' Jonathan Jelf laid down his knife and fork. Mrs. Jelf looked at me in a strange, startled way and never said a word. "'And he desired me to tell you, my dear madame—' that you need not take the trouble to burn the hall down in his honor this time, but only to have the chimney of the blue room swept before his arrival. Before I had reached the end of my sentence, I became aware of something ominous in the faces of the guests. I felt I had said something which I had better have left unsaid, and that for some unexplained reason my words had evoked a general consternation. I sat confounded, not daring to utter another syllable, and for at least two whole minutes there was dead silence round the table. The guests hitherto had been simply dull, but now they were evidently uncomfortable and embarrassed." The dessert had scarcely been placed upon the table when the ladies left the room. I seized the opportunity to select a vacant chair next a certain Captain Prendergast. In heaven's name, I whispered, what was the matter just now? What had I said? You mentioned the name of John Dwarehouse. What of that? I had seen him not two hours before. It is a most astounding circumstance that you should have seen him, said Captain Prendergast. Are you sure it was he? As sure as my own identity. We were talking all the way between London and Blackwater, but why does that surprise you? Because replied Captain Prendergast, dropping his voice to the lowest whisper. Because John Dwerryhouse absconded three months ago with seventy-five thousand pounds of the company's money and has never been heard of since. End of Section 18 The 415 Express, Part 1.